Let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6. Thank you for being here again this morning, choir. Thank you for ministering. And Gail, what a good word. We left this passage with the choosing of seven men who we saw were full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And we saw in the text in the first part of chapter 6 that they were known for that. It was the prerequisite for them to be called to serve the body in a practical way. And that freed up the apostles to do what God had called them to do, to pray and study and teach. It didn't mean that the apostles were lazy or that they were too big for the job of serving the tables uh, or that they just delegated everything and walked away. That's not good delegation. You don't just give it away and then have nothing to do with it. The apostles, though, had a distinctive calling from the Lord to spend their time and energy on a different part of the ministry. So, godly men were chosen who would bear some responsibility. And these men were were known, they were characterized by their spiritual maturity and their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that only comes from the Lord. And there was one of these men that stood out from the others. You remember his name. His name was what? Tell me. Stephen. Stephen was full of a lot of things. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. But he was also full of many other things. Faith and knowledge and a good reputation and grace and power. And he did miracles. He was a a very unique man. And God had really placed his hand on him, and Stephen was clearly very very zealous for the Lord. Confident in his trust in the Lord, bold in his witness, unashamed in every single way about the Lord. And I don't know about you, but that's how I want my life to be characterized this morning, and I hope that's how you want your life to be characterized, that our faith would be so unwavering and so confident. And that our witness would be bold and that we would not be ashamed of the Lord. We would be proud to know Him. Not proud in the arrogant way, but proud in the way that we want to tell everybody about it. And many of you came forward last week. Many of you, probably close to a hundred of you, came forward last week to say, I want to be full of the Spirit. I hope you're continuing to pray that. I hope that wasn't a a temporary decision that that left at 11 o'clock last week. That you've been continuing to ask the Lord... Lord, empty me of myself. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with wisdom. Now, when we look at Stephen's life, it was obvious that he was full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And it was overt. You couldn't avoid it. You couldn't help but notice in Stephen's life that this is who he was. But any time that's true, that's going to irritate somebody. How many know that's true this morning? Anytime you're walking with the Lord, anytime you're talking about the Lord, some people are going to be annoyed. And that's what happens here in the text. We're just going to look at six verses this morning. Look at Acts chapter 6 and start in verse 9. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders. I'm starting verse 8, I'm sorry. And signs among the people. But some men, from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia, Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen. In other words, the Greeks. We'll talk about that in a minute. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words about Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, verse 12, and the elders and the scribes, and they came 
up to him and dragged him away and brought him up before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks about this holy place and about the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now Stephen annoyed by his witness, by his filling of the Spirit, he annoyed a group of Greeks who were from a place called the synagogue of the freedmen. If you have a King James this morning, you would see the phrase there that they were called the Libertines. That was a name that the Romans had given to people that were born uh, native Greeks, but were given their freedom as Jews. So, Acts 22 tells us that Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, was one of these. He was a libertine. He was born as a Roman, and he was uh, given his freedom. You see that in the great passage, Acts 22. So, as a libertine, as one of these men, it's very possible, uh, and this is new insight uh, that I've seen over the last couple weeks in our study, that it's very possible and very likely that Paul is right in the middle of the scene again, that he's the one who's arguing that Stephen is lying, that, that Stephen is stirring up the people. And we see in a couple weeks, we'll study it when Stephen is stoned, that Paul is not only consenting to the death, but he's there cheering it on. They put their coats at his feet, and he's there watching Stephen be martyred. Now, this group, the, the synagogue of the freedmen, the libertines, is important information, were more legalistic than the native Jews. They were more concerned about uh, the letter of the law. And because they were concerned about the letter of the law, they were very concerned about the influence of the apostles. Because the apostles had not only gotten very popular, and as we've said, tens of thousands of people, probably 25,000, 30,000 people at this point are part of the church. They're part of those who have been redeemed. So this is a, a major force that's taking place in Jerusalem. And they were concerned about the popularity of that, not only because it diminished their influence, but also because it was a threat to the fabric of Judaism. So they tried to argue against it rationally. And in doing that, they chose to engage, in the passage we're looking at this morning, with Stephen. Now, Stephen was a Greek by birth, and he was obviously a student of Jewish history because, as we're going to study next week, he gives, uh, in, in chapter 7, a whole outline of Jewish history from the time of Abraham to the building of the temple. And, and he shows that he's highly educated. Now, that was in contrast to the apostles. Because you remember the criticism against the apostles was, what do they know? They've never been educated. They don't know the word. They're from Galilee of all places. You have to say that with a little twinge in your voice, right? They're from Galilee. Like, that was just the worst place you could possibly be. So they were looked down on. They were criticized because there was no education. Yet, there was a power in them that was undeniable. Well, in Stephen, they've got something different. Because not only is that spiritual power there, but now there's an intellectual power. And they take him on. Because their thinking is, if we can defeat him in the debate, if we can take him down and show the fallacy of his beliefs and what he's saying, and trap him into somehow blaspheming against Judaism then we can maybe stop the whole movement. Maybe by defusing him, we can put an end to this Christianity thing. How many think they're going to be successful in that endeavor? The one thing they didn't count on was that Stephen 
had something from God. He was full of the Spirit. He was full of spiritual wisdom. He was full of faith and full of grace and full of power. He had the Spirit filling him and teaching him and giving him wisdom. And when he talked to people, the Spirit of God was talking to people. When you have that in your life, there is no argument that can hold water. It's interesting as I've watched just a little bit of these presidential debates and to watch the media analyze every single word to try to find that soundbite that's going to undermine the contenders and to see how the candidates will stumble and say one thing. We saw a couple things this week where they said one thing and it, and it kind of trapped them and it, and it shows a lack of wisdom and a lack of discernment. And of course, the media pounces on that and it provides the opponents an opportunity to undercut the argument the person's making. It's, it's a fascinating and very morbid study of socialism. Here's the problem. The gospel doesn't have any holes. The gospel doesn't have those statements where you go, oh, I don't, oh, I can't defend that. We're able to talk about Jesus Christ. We're able to talk about His death and resurrection. We're able to talk about His, His ascension. We're able to talk about the gospel, that Christ died for your sins, that He rose again, that He gives newness of life, that you're not saved by works, that we're not trapped under the bondage of sin anymore, that Christ has released us. We're able to talk about that without cringing at all. We're able to talk about that without saying, oh, I hope somebody doesn't argue this point, this point, because there's no defense for that. The gospel is strong. And when we're filled by the Spirit and we stay close to the Word of God, when we speak, God will give wisdom. And people will be convicted and there will be no defense. How do we know that's true? We'll look back at verse 10. It says, as they argued, they were unable to cope What a great phrase. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. They couldn't argue it. These are the most intelligent people in Judaism. They couldn't argue it. They they couldn't deal with it. It was almost like they had to shudder back like, oh, I wish we had some kind of strong defense against what he's saying. But, but it's, it's like somebody that keeps pushing you and you're going backwards and you can't stop. You're losing your balance. That's how strong the argument was. And as Stephen kept talking about Jesus Christ and about the gospel and about the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Greek, as he keeps pushing forward and talking about the gospel, they're reeling. They can't cope. They can't deal with it. Because he's so full of wisdom and the Spirit. Those are the distinguishing characteristics of the Spirit-filled believer. And I want you to see the power that's there when we live under the Spirit's control. But also notice that when we're under the Spirit's control and we're talking about the Gospel, people won't understand it. And they may even resent it. And that often leads them to follow the devil's temptation to oppose him. You can just feel in this text the jealousy and the anger. Because they recognize that they lack the power that Stephen has. And they don't have enough logic in their convictions to contradict the Word of God. Not only can they not offset his argument, but they can't even make their own argument. doesn't say they weren't able to resist him. It says they weren't able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. Never in a discussion about the Lord, make it about you. Never say, well, I know the truth. 
And, and I, I, in this verse and this verse, I memorized that when I was a kid. No, if we get into that when we're talking about the Lord, we're making it about us. When we teach the Word, when I preach the Word, I have to guard my heart that I'm not making it about me. This is not about me this morning. This is about the Word of God. I pray that God is able to work and give His wisdom and that His Spirit is the one that is speaking. And when we talk about the Gospel, that's what it needs to be. It wasn't that they couldn't resist Stephen. He was just a man. They couldn't resist the strength of the Gospel. And Jesus told us this would happen. Luke 21 He says, I'm going to give you a mouth and a wisdom that your enemies will not be able to resist. They won't be able to refute the Word of God that's coming out of your mouth. And this is something that we know to be true about the Bible and about the Gospel. It is clear and it is strong. And there is no reasonable objection to it. The only objection that people have is their personal rejection. And to use rejection... People have to come up with flawed arguments and with fallacious thinking and accusations that distract from the real issue. I believe that when we look at verse 10, look back at it, it not only teaches that they couldn't resist the force of the argument, but I believe my conviction, my conviction, I can't prove it, my conviction is that that their hearts are starting to be persuaded and and it scared them. I think they heard the force of the argument and they were reeling because they knew their argument and their convictions had no defense for that. But I think they also start to feel the tug. They also start to recognize the truth of this. But they're not willing to let go of their lifestyle and in their pride and in their embarrassment and in their resistance and the hardness of their hearts. They secretly find people. They go out and they say, let's find some people to lie about him. Let's find some accusers who will make up things about him. These are the two of the devil's favorite tactics. He loves to lie and he loves to accuse. When the devil knows he has no power over a situation, he just lies and accuses and hopes people will believe it. And when somebody's not filled with the Spirit, they become very gullible to it and they recognize nothing. And they hear something that seems to make sense and they kind of hope is true, and it gives them the advantage and the upper hand, because if that's true and that person is, is accused of that, and that's true, boy, that's great. That helps me. So for whatever reason, whatever motivation, when these guys go out and they say, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a little bit of money. Here's a little stretch. Let, let's, just, let's have a little deal just in the palm. You take this. There's a man named Stephen. You probably heard about him. Just, just, just take this for your effort. We'd love for you to come in and say what you've heard. You remember when he talked about Jesus? And you remember how he said all these things? And they start to fill people's hearts with lies. They, they prearrange it so it's all set up because that's the only way they could argue it at this point. They've proven to be wrong. They've proven to be embarrassed. They've heard the truth. It should have prompted them to thank Stephen for being honest and for giving them hope but instead it just ticked them off. So they pay people to substantiate what's not true. Because Stephen never blasphemed Moses. He certainly never blasphemed God. But the lie is so deep and so convoluted. If you look at the text, it says they come and say, he's incessantly talking about this. He won't stop. He's driving us crazy. Of course, there's no record of it. There's no proof. They can't say this, this, and this. They just say, well, we heard him say it. 
Listen, when you're up against somebody who says, well, I heard this, there's very little defense. He threatened the law. He disrupted our traditions. He's, he's, he's doing all sorts of things. And they start to appeal to Jewish pride. Hey, guys, now come on now. This Stephen, this Greek, he's talking about our law. And he's talking about the temple and this, this rebel Jesus. We, we, you better stop this. Sanhedrin and said in chapter 5, we're not going to mess with it. So look at what they do. It says in verse 12 that they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. Didn't take much to persuade people to be part of joining the crowd. I'm pretty sure you have people coming along and they're not even sure what the charges are. They don't even know who Stephen is. They've just been lied to and they want to come around and oppose it. Reminds me of a cartoon I saw once. A huge mob is marching and chanting and the one man says to the other, do you know what we're protesting? The other man says, I have no idea, but I had to be here. That's what's happening here. There's a, there's a mentality as people come together and I wonder if anybody ever stopped to think, what are we doing here? What are we fighting against and why? Why do we have this guy, Stephen, that we're opposing? Why do they want to pay me to lie about him. What's the motivation here? Do I really want to oppose someone who has clear spiritual power and who is talking about Jesus Christ? See, the enemy is very crafty and the angle seems very logical, but the fact is that the enemy doesn't want us to think. Hear that this morning with the glut of information that is barraging us Day after day after day after day, the enemy doesn't want you to think. He doesn't want you to take the Word of God and study it and pour over it and meditate on it and go to the Lord and say, Lord, teach me what you want to know. He wants us to be harried and frenzied and running around and exhausted and worn out until we just collapse on the couch at 11 o'clock and say, i got to go to bed. Anybody else feel that? I feel that. And we go one day to the next, one weekend to the next, and now it's February. Where did January go? It's going to be April before we know it. Everybody say amen. But seriously, can you count the 168 hours of the last week? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is a blur. And the enemy saw this last Sunday. He watched. He's a student of behavior. He saw you come up and stand holding hands or with your arms raised and say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. And guess what his attack was? I'm going to make them not think about that. I'm going to so dilute their week and so fill them with junk that will distract them that they won't even get time for their Bible. So they'll just come back the next week and hope that they'll get something that will encourage them again. The enemy doesn't want us to think. And that attack never stops against those people who love the Lord and are filled with His Spirit. And the more Spirit-filled we are, the more obvious that will be. And we need to watch against this and we need to guard against it. We need to recognize this type of attack, either if it's against us or against the brother and sister in Christ. 
And when somebody starts to attack and impugn and accuse and lie, we need to immediately stand up against it and stop it before it ever spreads. And needless to say, we should never, ever be part of unfounded accusations against another believer or allow ourselves to be swept up in the emotion of the moment without digging for the truth and saying, I want to know if what you're saying is absolutely true. Because people's reputations and churches have been severely damaged by someone who's out of fellowship making an accusation against the believer and by people taking sides before they even find out the truth and pretty soon, boom, it's all split. People just join in. They don't even know what this is about. Hey, here's some money. Great. You want to give me money? I'll say whatever you want. Stephen, who is he? What's he about? Well, he lied about the law. And and he says Jesus is going to destroy the temple. And he's impugning our traditions. Oh, good. Give me the money. I'll go talk about that. What do you want me to say? What are we trying to get to here? Look at the text in verse 12. The mob comes in and it finds him and it drags him away to the council. They've learned nothing from what happened with Jesus. They've learned nothing from what happened with the apostles. But they ambush Stephen. He's not expecting it. Notice that none of the other apostles are with him. That was an intentional move by the opposition because they had seen the power that was with the apostles and they knew how much bolder they were when they were together. They've just been released from prison, chapter 5, by the angel in the night. And, and, and that's not even stopped them. And then they scourged them and they still go into the temple and they start to preach. The council at this point is intimidated. So they see Stephen, and Stephen's argument is so persuasive that it's knocking them over. And they see the the power that's within him, and they see the spirit that's present within him, and they say, we've got to do something. We can't wait till he gets back with the other apostles. We've got to get him now. There's a very important spiritual principle this morning that I want you to see here, and that is the devil will always try to isolate us in order to weaken and overcome us. And we need to recognize it before it ever happens. Now that's not to say that we should be scared of being alone with the Lord, because that's clearly biblical. But when we are under attack, when we're facing temptation, the body is the great source of strength and protection and encouragement. One of the things that will happen to you and to me when we are under temptation or we're discouraged or we're being beaten down, is to say, I just got to get alone with myself. Rather than coming together with the body and saying, you know what? I need to hear Gail's testimony. I need to hear her talk about how God worked in her life. I need to hear the choir sing, praise the Lord for whatever. I need to see believers with their Bibles in their hands taking notes. I need to hear the prayers of the saints. I I need that. I need that strength. Sin is usually done in private. You will rarely get tempted when you're in a crowd of believers. Temptation goes after us when we're tired and we're discouraged and we're lonely and we're insecure and we feel left out and we're sad because in those times we usually don't want to be around other people. And How many know it's true that your mind starts to imagine all sorts of things? And you start to get insecure and nobody likes me and I'm worthless and nobody cares and nobody's called me to reach out to find out how I'm doing. 
instead of remembering God's love and God's mercy, we start to believe the lies. And then here's what happens. We convince ourselves that to overcome that, we deserve something that will make us happy. Self-indulgence, materialism, illegitimate sex, feeling sorry for ourselves, some sort of vice, alcohol, whatever the case may be, we, we start to get so sorry for ourselves. And instead of turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, I lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. We say, nobody cares. And the devil who is smooth and slick and a liar comes along and says, you know what? If you would just do that, you'd feel so much better. That's why the Spirit says to us, destroy speculation and every proud thing that's raised up against the truth of Christ and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I looked at that verse again last night and I hadn't we know take every thought captive. We quote that. It's on plaques. But I was intrigued by the first part of the verse. Destroy the speculation. The speculation is that junk in our minds that I just talked about where you kind of go, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like anybody cares. I don't know if I can do this thing of walking with Christ. seems too hard and I feel a little left out and I'm discouraged and you don't know what's going on in my life, Paul. No, destroy that speculation. Those are proud thoughts that are raising up where we're saying, it's about me. No, it is not about you. It's about the Lord. And when we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, it does two things. It gets the focus away from us and it puts it back on the Word of God. And the Spirit of God, when we take this Word, He says, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to convict you. I'm going to give you fresh courage. And I'm going to fill you. Look at how Stephen doesn't back down. I love it. He's so full of the Spirit, so full of wisdom. And we'll look at this next week. He just gives a reasoned, word-centered defense. He says, this is how God works. And this is how foolish and petty and guilty mankind is. But God delivers people and He points them toward Christ. But for that, they, they say, you're a religious heretic. You're speaking against the law. You're speaking against the temple. But I want you to notice, it's not by what he said. Look at it. It's in verse 14. What they're irritated by is that he's talking about Jesus. Well, we heard him say what Jesus said. And then they completely mischaracterize and misquote what Jesus has said. Because Jesus said in three days, this temple will be destroyed and built back up. They didn't get that he was talking about his body. They thought he was talking about the brick and mortar of the temple. And then they're irritated that he's altering Moses' customs. Notice, not the law. They don't say, well, he's speaking against the Ten Commandments. Or he's speaking against the law. Or he's saying we shouldn't worship God. No, that's not what they're saying. Well, he's taking Moses' customs and he's trying to alter them like they were gold. They hadn't heard a word, Jesus said. They still don't understand that the whole point 
of the record of their forefathers in the Old Testament. People who had every advantage. People who had God with them. People who had a clear law. They had everything they needed to walk in righteousness if we're able to do that. That the whole point of the record of their forefathers was that they completely failed. They rebelled against God. They served themselves. And that proves without a shadow of a doubt that mankind cannot save himself even in the best of circumstances. And salvation is most definitely not by works. They don't understand that Jesus came to fulfill the law, put an end to the ritual of the law, because the law is imperfect, and He offers us freedom from the bondage of sin and the gift of being declared righteous. They still don't get that salvation is only by the grace of God when we put our trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. They don't get it. So they say, well, Jesus, oh, come on. He talked about destroying the temple building and he changed the traditions and all this mess. It's not true. And they miss what's so obvious right before their eyes. But I found something very fascinating. Oh, the Spirit impressed this on me. Look back at verse 14. This is, this is where studying the Bible in depth can be so wonderful. And it gives us strength in our faith and how to defend our faith. I want you to notice, I'm going to sound like a nerd here, okay? You ready? Verse 14, I want you to look at the verb tense. You're going, verb tense, really? That's the best you got in February 2012? Yeah, it is, actually. For we have heard him say, look now very carefully, that this Nazarene, Jesus, tell me the next word, will. That's present tense, isn't it? We heard him say that this Jesus will destroy the temple two times. Look at the rest of it. And will, it's implied, alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now that raises the question. Why are they worried about what Stephen and the others are saying about Jesus Christ if he isn't alive like they say he isn't? Why are they talking about what Jesus will do in the future if He's dead? They know that their faith hinges on Jesus Christ being alive. Well, if Jesus is dead, why are they concerned about what would then be idle threats that Jesus had made about destroying the temple? Who cares what He says if He's dead? Where would His influence be? He has no power. But don't miss that. We heard him say that Jesus will do this. They can't find any holes in Stephen's theology. They can't match his wisdom. They can't offset the power that's in him. And now they recognize, here's the problem. Nobody knows where Jesus' body is because it's not there. There's a unique power in this man that we can't offset. It's pushing us back. And he's defending Jesus Christ, who now tens of thousands of people are going around talking about Christ. And they're completely overwhelmed by it. And they say, we've got to stop this one person at a time. But they recognize, please don't miss this, they recognize that Jesus is alive 
and that there's power there. And what had to drive them absolutely crazy was that Stephen was completely unfazed by what's going on. Look at verse 15 and we'll conclude. When everyone looks at him, don't miss that word, all, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. In other words, his appearance was his appearance had the mark of heaven. His countenance shone. His face was different. When you looked at him, you saw something that was different. It's similar to when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, and it says that his face shone because he had been in the presence of God. And it was so overwhelming, they said, Moses, seriously, you've got to put a veil on. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, he would come out and they'd say, got to cover your face again to tell us what you learned, because we can't stand in your presence. Stephen evidences, look at it, the presence of God. And when you are near the presence of God, it will produce only one of two responses. Either it will draw you closer to the Lord in humility and give you a greater hunger to be in the presence of God yourself, or it will drive you crazy because you're guilty. There is no middle ground. So my question is, what is it for you this morning? And much of how you answer that question will be determined by how much true peace you feel in your heart. I want you to see in verse 15 that there is a peace to Stephen that comes from being in the center of God's will. How many of us know that whenever we're in sin and we're living for ourselves, there is no peace? No calmness, no joy, no real satisfaction, certainly no contentment. We feel restless and antsy and out of sorts and spiritually and emotionally and mentally we're churning inside and nothing Gives us peace. That's how the crowd was. They're in an emotional frenzy. They drag Stephen to the council. They're grabbing people as they go. Come, you can lie. You can lie. You make wild, irrational accusations against him. We gotta stop this. They're frantic to make.